Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This fifth season of our podcast is a special deep dive into a case that we covered as it was happening. The trial of Robert Durst for the murder of his good friend and confidant, Susan Berman. In Jury Duty, the Robert Durst prosecutor speaks. We present a series of exclusive interviews with L.A. Deputy District Attorney John Lewin, the lead prosecutor in that trial. John takes us on his journey from the very beginning of his involvement with the case, through the trial, and through the death of Robert Durst on January 10th, 2022. In our last installment, Lewin explained how his team used Robert Durst's perjurious testimony from his Texas trial for the murder of Morris Black in Durst's L.A. trial for the murder of Susan Berman. Lewin also explained the bizarre set of circumstances by which Durst turned over to a New York investigator a trove of his personal documents and effectively waived any privileged claims in those documents. In this episode, Durst clarifies the significance of those documents, explains how he dealt with the defense team's unfounded accusations against him of impropriety, and takes us through the significance of the last of the state's witness testimonies in the trial. That's all coming up right after the break. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A few quick program notes. Because the interviews had to be conducted by phone during one of John's early morning or late evening neighborhood hikes along a busy coastal road, the quality often is not optimal. We will clarify when it seems critical to understanding Lewin's narrative. Also, in the event that you would like to revisit the sections of the trial that Lewin describes, during this episode I will identify the installments of the Jury Duty podcast that cover these parts of the trial. And if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. In our last episode, Lewin recounted the story of how Susie Giordano, the self-described cohabitant of a love nest with Robert Durst, came to turn over a trove of boxes to New York State investigator Joe Becerra. We now rejoin my conversation with John Lewin as I ask him to clarify the timeline of events surrounding that series of circumstances. So... Bob's arrested in New Orleans in March of 2015. You do the interview with him in New Orleans at that time. When were the Susie Giordano boxes turned over to Joe Becerra? The next day. uh, That Sunday. I think Sunday the 16th. Got it. So after you interviewed him. I I literally went back to the hotel, called Joey and said, hey, I need you to go out there now, grab this stuff before this hits everything, and get him. Get a consent from her, and that's what he did. Got it. And then when did you file charges against Bob? I filed charges on Monday, the next day. Now, at the time, which was funny, is my boss, who is a wonderful lady, now retired, she had to deal with me. I don't know if I told you, but early on, when Bob was arraigned in November of 2016, this will actually be now, this part is after this is going on. So November 2016, Bob is arraigned. And at the arraignment, they want us, the defense wants us to turn over something to them 
that they don't have a right to, and I and I won't do it. And we get into an argument. I end up going back to my office, and my boss at the time brings up what happened outside of court with Chesna. And immediately, I am furious. I say, wait, what? Wait a minute. How do you know this? And I can see the look in her face because she knows I'm going off. Um, wait a minute. Did, did they call you? Did you speak to them without me? No, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. Oh, my God. Did they call somebody higher up the chain? And I see the look on her face, and I go crazy. I am not. If anybody talked to them and they did it without me being there, that's it. I will not handle this case. What do you mean? You're not gonna, you're not gonna do that. Seriously? You don't think I'll do it? I will absolutely do it. Well, they're not gonna, they're not gonna let you. What are they gonna fucking do about it? They can't do anything. I'll do whatever I fucking want to. I am not gonna have against policy people talking about my case without me being there. I, I, I won't allow it. Won't have it. They run the office, that's fine. They can, uh, I'll be off this case quickly. And by the way, don't think I'll go quietly either. They want to do it, that's fine. Everything better work out because if it doesn't, they're going to look really, really foolish. So anyway, she, of course, you know, calms me down and says, don't worry about it, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, okay, you know, you tell upstairs. You know, I don't need to go tell them, but you tell them where I'm coming from. So anyway, fast forward, when I find out about this, Chesnoff, I end up discovering that he's the one that called somebody high up in the office. I know it from numerous different reliable sources. And, of course, he lies to me. He lies about it. Says he never did it. I know that he did it. So in the midst of all this, I want to get a legal determination by the judge that Bob has waived privilege in all the Giordano boxes. So tactically, I had to decide do I want to go get a search warrant for this stuff? And I decide we're not doing search warrants. We don't need to. I'm not going to let a judge be able to make, you know, the easy gutless decision, whoever it might be, oh, you know, uh, I'm not going to allow it or you, or I'll give you this, et cetera. They absolutely, under all the authority that's out there, they've waived privilege. I have recordings from Bob where he's saying it. I have recordings from Susie where he's saying it. I have Jarecki and Smerlin. So basically – we start litigating. One of the things that I was very upset about is from the start, I sat down with the defense lawyers because the first thing that Dick did was he held a press conference on that Sunday on the courthouse steps, and he basically said how I had illegally and unethically interviewed Bob. Now, that was legally and factually wrong. It's not up for debate. You can argue whether you think it's a good law, but it's like somebody saying that you went – 65 miles an hour on the freeway, and that's illegal. Well, you can argue whether you think 65 miles an hour is a good speed limit, but that's the law. So I sit down after I see this thing. I call each one of the lawyers, and I tell them very plainly, hey, listen, maybe you don't know what the law is in California. Let me give it to you. I explain them the law. If you ever, ever try to call me unethical or say I committed misconduct, you better have it. That is not simply some bullshit weapon for you to throw out. If you do it, we will have an extremely contentious relationship. And by the way, you call me all the time asking me, where's this? Where's that? Can you help me with this? I always help you. I don't have to do that. You do this again, it's war, and you get exactly what I'm required to give you. So, unfortunately, they continued with 
the bullshit narrative that I violated Bob's rights with this interview. Meantime, I'm going into court, and I'm asking Wyndham now to make a finding that this was ethical and that there was no misconduct. And listen, I get it. He didn't want to do it. So I'm getting angrier and angrier because it needs to be done. This goes to my, my integrity. I've been a prosecutor for 30 years. Some people might not like me, but my ethical reputation is flawless. There isn't anybody who will say that I'm anything other than completely ethical. I go past what I need to do. So anyway, what ends up happening is we are now litigating the privilege issue regarding the Giordano bond. Here, Lewin returns to the issue of whether Robert Durst had waived any privilege claims he might have had in the boxes that New York State investigator Joe Becerra secured from Susie Giordano. More on this after the break. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. We return to my interview with John Lewin as he describes how he turned the tables on the defense team and their groundless accusations that Lewin's interview of Robert Durst in a New Orleans jail was improper or unethical. Lewin explains that he forced Judge Mark Wyndham to rule that the interview was both proper and ethical by introducing as evidence a statement made by Durst in that interview. The statement was that he ordered Susie Giordano to turn over boxes of what would otherwise have been privileged material to the filmmakers of the Jinx because he thought it would make him look like, quote, an acceptable human being, end quote, to those filmmakers. In ruling that the statement was admissible, Judge Wyndham explicitly acknowledged that the interview was ethical and that Durst had waived privilege claims over the material in the boxes. Here is Lewin's explanation. So what I decided to do is, you know what, I'm going to admit the statement from Bob Durst to me because that supports the fact that he waived privilege. In addition, it will force the judge to give a ruling as to whether that statement is admissible. So in other words, if it's unconstitutional, he can't consider it. So that's what we do in the context of the motion. Originally, what I end up filing is, is I file the transcript. And then they have the nerve to come back and to file their own motion. They get a statement from a lawyer, a local lawyer down there. She clearly misrepresented or outright lied about his condition. They had a report from her. And again, I'm basing it on what the defense did. So either the defense lied about what she said to them or she misrepresented what she told them. Could be either. But basically, she says, in essence, I'm paraphrasing, Bob did not know what was going on during that interview. He was confused. He was, you know, sleep deprived. He, he, you know, was under the influence, et cetera, all kinds of stuff. So I then say, okay, that's the game you want to play? Then I'm going to attach the audio. And they go crazy because obviously what they were doing was completely disingenuous. They were making an allegation that could not be disproven by the naked transcript. 
and they knew that the audio was going to show that it was a complete lie. So that's what I did. That created more issues, more problems. But again, they caused that to happen. Then they told me that I had to file it under seal. And I told them they could pound sand. I don't have to file it under seal. In fact, I could have held a press conference had I wanted to. Because one of the times when we are allowed to speak to the press during a case under bar rules is to refute inaccurate information that is being put out there by defense attorneys. So they're putting out a narrative that I committed misconduct and was unethical in interviewing Bob Durst. They're doing that knowing what the law is. And I want to be clear, Chip Lewis had no part in this at all. So just so that I'm clear on how you just went on that slight tangent, you were in the process of litigating the privilege issue with respect to the boxes. Well, I find a way, you know what, I can force the judge to make a ruling on the statement by introducing the statement as evidence in this motion. Right. Right. Bob's statement to you in the New Orleans jail on March 15, 2015, that the reason he told Susie Giordano to give Mark and Andrew the boxes of stuff with privileged material is that he thought it made him look like, quote, a sympathetic person as opposed to a super aggressive person, end quote. Correct? Correct. Now, originally, when I did it, the judge comes back with, well, I don't think I need to use this evidence to decide this issue. And I say to him, well, Your Honor, respectfully, that's not your choice. You don't get to decide what evidence I put on. You get to decide what, in other words, in a motion, you get to decide either this evidence is admissible or it isn't. But you can't say, listen, I don't need you to put this on because I can find it another way. And he ends up making the ruling. Now, he doesn't say what I wanted him to say, and that took a long period of time. As you're aware, eventually, he got tired, I I think this is my speculation, he got tired of the bullshit, he knows that I'm scrupulously ethical, and he did not like the fact, I don't think, that they were stating that I committed misconduct and trying to say that to the jury. And, you know, he fired them up, he did it again during trial. That led to another outburst, remember, that led to him giving the instruction to the jury. So back to Susie Giordano. So I need to bring Susie Giordano out to testify about the motion. It was not a conditional examination. She had a very good lawyer, a very diligent lawyer. I spoke to him, and I told him, hey, listen, you know, uh, he said, do I need to come? And I said, well, I will give you my assurance that I will not get into any of the issues that I'm going to talk to her about when she testifies at trial. However, I will be getting into issues about their relationship and about her bias, et cetera. So Susie came out and she testified. That was not a conditional examination. So that is why, obviously, we had to bring her out for trial because we hadn't covered all the things we wanted to cover. So during that conditional examination, Susie, of course, lied her ass off. She lied about the nature of the relationship. She lied about what she knew, what had happened. And then when she testified at trial, she did more lies. We cover the trial testimony of Susie Giordano in Season 2, Episode 11 of this podcast. And we cover Robert Durst's testimony about some of the things he told Susie Giordano in Season 2, Episode 36. 
Among the statements that Giordano made during her testimony was the assertion that she, quote, didn't ask questions, end quote, about acting on the requests of Robert Durst, including sending to him in New Orleans a suitcase of clothes in March 2015, which turned out to include $115,000 in cash. Durst received that parcel shortly before he was arrested on March 15, 2015. Her line was pathetic. She would cry constantly and breathe heavily, and I think she thought that if she cried and played poor me and hyperventilated, that the jury would somehow hate me. They hated her. Hated her. Now, I thought that her lies were very transparent, and some people have said, well, Susie's not very bright. Well, here's how bright Susie is. You look at the amount of money that people got in this case, Susie, by her own admission, has gotten somewhere in the half-million-dollar area, and that's what she admits to. So however not bright or unsophisticated she might appear, she was able to work a lot of money from Bob. Jean Clark, who's a very smart lady, from what I can tell, got nothing other than a trip. Stuart and Emily, you know, they got a uh, Lexus and a vacation. So she was the big winner. So she ends up coming out eventually to testify at trial. And again, I knew what it was going to be. So I had all my clips. So I'm going to first bury her with her lies. And then I'm going to start asking her about specific questions about the case. And one of the things that I did with her was I got her to agree that she grabbed the suitcase. And when she grabbed the suitcase, the suitcase was empty. I got that admission from her early. And then I used at least four different times. When you grab the empty suitcase. Now, I know that what I'm planning on doing is I'm going to show that money in the suitcase. Her position had been she didn't know it was there. Well, how did the money get there if it was an empty suitcase? So she got trapped. Can you just take us through the sequence of events with respect to the suitcase? Okay, so Susie ends up saying that Bob requested he was supposed to be coming up to New York and was supposed to be getting there sometime around the 20th of March. So she says he requested that she send him some clothes. Now, it doesn't really make sense. Why does he need clothes? He's leaving New Orleans. He's coming up to New York. But that's what she does. And then she admits that Bob said to send it to a different name, which she did. Now, she did not know when she was first interviewed that we had intercepted that package. So, of course, she never mentioned it, and she lied about it. So when they make the arrest from Bob. They find either the notes or the tracking packs. I think it was, if I remember, it was a notification from the hotel telling Bob that either UPS or FedEx had a package for him. So they go and they get the package. It's from Susie Giordano, and they find more than a hundred grand buried inside the suitcase. She had sent him a second suitcase as well. So anyway, we knew about this. FBI knew, and when they interviewed Susie. She originally lied about it. Then she ends up telling Eric Perry that she, she she had sent the suitcase but didn't know what was inside. So we had her six ways to Sunday. I had all her jail calls. She had a very lengthy impeachment plan. So I put her up there, and I gutted her because it wasn't hard. I mean, you know, she, she was, again, lying her ass off, and that's what we did. So she gets on the stand. And as I like to do with all these lying witnesses, is before I even get to their substantive stuff, I take them apart on their credibility. All the stuff about the relationship, all the lies on the phone, 
Now, she was very clear in her testimony that Bob had never told her he had been in California at the time and had found Susan's body. Bob later testified that he had told her, and he had told her around the time that he was arrested in New Orleans. I actually believe Bob on this one. So anyway, that was the story. Next, I guide Lewin to discuss the testimonies of two more witnesses, Catherine Piermate, a grocery store security guard, and Dean Benner, a Lehigh Valley police officer, related to the apprehension of fugitive Robert Durst when he shoplifted a hoagie from a Pennsylvania Wegmans. Okay, so Catherine Piermate and Dean Benner. Yeah, so they were very important because Bob ends up shoplifting when he has a bunch of money in his pocket and thousands in the car. When he is apprehended. This is in Pennsylvania, right? In Pennsylvania, correct, at the Wegman on November 30th of 2001. So when Bob is apprehended, instead of saying, hey, listen, here's the money I can pay for this, Bob says, hey, you know what? I've got the money in the car. Now, there's no reason for him to say that because he has the money on his purse. He says that to the security guard, Catherine. She doesn't want to take the car. When Dean Benner gets there, he ends up telling Dean Benner that he has his ID, very important, in the glove compartment of the car. And if they can go out and get it, he can give it to him. Dean Benner doesn't want to do that. Chillingly, when they end up impounding the car and they go to the glove box, there's no ID in there. What there is is a loaded revolver ready to go. So you have to ask yourself, why is Bob repeatedly trying to get to the car to get money that he has on his person and to tell them he needs to retrieve a driver's license from the glove box when the driver's license is in a whole different part of the car? And what we believe was going on was he was going to grab that gun and he was going to shoot his way out. We'd probably have more of it. That was incredibly important testimony because it was chilling. And it really showed you, oh, my God, you know, this guy, if it was completely relevant because he's doing that, that's consciousness of guilt. You know, he knows what's going on, he knows what he's done, and he's going to shoot his way to freedom. So that's what they were for. That's what they brought to the table. Next, I ask Lewin about the testimonies of two investigators, including New York State investigator Joe Becerra, whom we covered in Season 2, Episode 13 of Jury Duty. And then Joe Becerra and Luis Romero. Okay, so... Joe Becerra was brought in to basically just talk about the history of Kathy's case. And also, he had helped us when we first started working the investigation. I wanted to use New York State Police to be contacting the witnesses in New York because I didn't want Bob to find out that it was L.A. that was looking at him because I knew he was afraid of L.A. I knew he was afraid of Susan. I knew he was not afraid at all of New York, because basically every so often they would renew this case and nothing ever happened. And he had always said, they're never going to do anything. So that's what Joe testified to. Louis Romero was there to basically talk about the statement that Bob gave to myself, to Louis, and to Mike Whalen, who was long retired in New Orleans. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. Join us on our next installment as John Lewin and I begin our conversation about his cross-examination of the only defense witness in this trial other than the defendant himself, memory expert Dr. Elizabeth Loftus. Again, in the event that you would like to revisit our coverage of the testimony of Susie Giordano, check out Jury Duty Season 2, Episode 11. And we looked at Joe Becerra's testimony in Season 2, Episode 13. 
Also, if you want to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You can find more information about this trial at CrimeStory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. The episode was co-produced, written, and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Robert Durst Prosecutor Speaks. <laughs>